Good morning. It is great to see all of you here today. Y'all, I'm excited because uh, today we're actually jumping into the sixth chapter of Ephesians, which means we're in our final chapter of our Ephesians series. Hopefully you're excited because the book's been good, not because you're ready for this series to be over. But we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6 this morning. If you would, open up your copy of God's Word or tap your copy of God's Word on if you're using your phone or iPad or whatever else you may have. As we continue our series, Life in Christ, How His Story Changes Yours. I want to thank you all again for being here. And once again, thank you for people, if you're not here, for watching. Glad to have you all this morning as well. As we start this morning, I think I told you all last week or two weeks ago that whenever I was in seminary, my, one of my favorite things, or really my favorite thing about seminary was the chapel services that I got to go to. We had chapel service every Tuesday and Thursday, and honestly, it was just incredible. We had great men of God get up there and deliver God's word. It was one of the most challenging things for me. Uh, it's one of the things I missed the most. But one of the sermons that I still remember, uh, it was a great sermon, but the title is what caught me, and then the meaning obviously was really great. But the title of the sermon was Carry the Cheese. And I'll never forget, I'm sitting out in the audience, and I got my notepad out, and I'm writing, and I have a notebook where all my chapel messages are, and I have title, and he says, carry the cheese. And I'm like, carry the, wait, what? What do you mean, carry the cheese? And he starts talking about the story, and he takes us to 1 Samuel chapter 17, the, the, the passage where we hear about David slaying the giant Goliath. And, and he goes to this, and he says, you know, a lot of you know about David and Goliath, but what happened that morning? What happened the morning of? And he, he said, I want to go back and look at that day in the life of David. And, and he shows us how at the beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 17, David's just a shepherd tending the sheep. And it says that David's dad comes to him and says, hey, I want you to take some bread and some grain and some cheese to your brothers who are on the battlefield. He says, David's just carrying the cheese. And it said, as he has done this many times, he had done this many times, he's just doing a normal task, taking the cheese out to his brothers and while he's there, he hears Goliath defame the name of God. And he goes to Saul, and he says, our God can defeat him. Put, put me out there, and, and you know the rest of the story. David goes out there, defeats the giant. But the whole point of, of the pastor's uh, sermon was we oftentimes want God to work us in big ways. And we think for God to work in us, it has to be through these extravagant measures, these big things that God's going to do in our lives. But what we fail to realize is God most often works through the normal. God works through the normal aspects of our day. He works through the normal things that we do, and we do well. The reason I start with that is last week we began this, this idea of there are certain roles that God calls us to play. There are these spirit-filled roles. We see in Ephesians 5.18 where it says, Do not be drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And he says, Be filled with the Spirit and serve and love one another in the church. Be filled with the Spirit as your wife. Be filled with the Spirit as a husband. And this week, we're going to continue the last two roles, which are that of the family and that of work. Things that are normal. They're common tasks that we go through. But what we don't realize is it's through these avenues where God works miracles, where God does major things in our lives. And so this morning, we're going to be talking about family life and the workplace and the roles that we play in them as we continue this idea of what are our roles as spirit-filled followers of Christ. Let me pray for us, and we'll jump in the text. Heavenly Father, I praise you for this morning. God, I praise you for another chance, God, another opportunity to, to come together, Lord, to sing to you, God, to pray to you, Lord, to open up your word and to hear what you have to say to us. And this morning I ask, Lord, please speak. Speak through me. 
Speak through your word, Lord. Help us have ears to hear. Help us have eyes to see what you want to say to us this morning. God, these avenues, the family and the workplace are the areas where you move. And you move most often here. But help us pay attention to what you have to say. And we ask all this in your precious and your holy son, Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we're going to look at this final breakdown that Paul gives to us. And he gives us a final four roles that we play in the, as a followers of Christ. The first role is this, that of a spirit-filled follower of Christ, spirit-filled children. What role do children play as believers in Jesus, as followers of Christ? Well, children, first and foremost, your role is to honor and to obey your parents. Your role is to honor and obey your parents. And before I get, you know, paper balls and stuff thrown at me from the balcony or other areas, trust, just wait, I'm going to parents next, and it'll be much more uh, stern with them. Paul's much more stern in that regard. But the first thing he turns his mind to is children and their role. Look at verses 1 and 2, the beginning of verse 2. Paul says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. Notice first and foremost, this isn't a suggestion that comes from Paul. This isn't, hey, in a good home you should do this. This isn't, hey, in a perfect world it's this. Paul says this is a command. Children, obey your parents. Honor your father and your mother. And now, like many kids do, children or youth, whoever, we want to ask the question, why? Paul doesn't just give us a blanket command. He tells us why we need to do this. And I think he breaks it down in three reasons why children must obey their parents. First reason he gives us is this. Obedience to your parents is right. Obedience to your parents is right. Look at what he says again. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and, you, and that you may live long in the land. He says, obey them, honor them. And, and whenever he says honor them, he talks about the Ten Commandments. Back in Exodus 20, whenever God gives Moses the commandments on two tablets. And the fifth commandment, that is honor your father and your mother. Y'all, the Hebrew word honor is a verb in that sentence. So how do you honor your father and your mother? Through action, through obeying them. You honor them by respecting them, but you honor them by obeying them. This is right as a child. The second reason why Paul gives us to obey our parents and honor them is in obeying your parents, you are being obedient to Christ. This might be the most profound truth here. In obeying your parents, you are being obedient to Christ. Notice once again, he says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. Obey them in the Lord. Max Sanders, one scholar, helps here. He says, in the Lord does not mean that children only need to obey Christian parents. Rather, it means that they are obeying the Lord when they obey their parents. See, children are to honor and respect their mom and dad because that is the authority that God has placed over them. Now, saying in the Lord, it gives a good caveat that it's not saying you do dishonorable things if your parents have you do that or you sin if your parents ask you to do that. That's not what it's saying. But saying in the Lord, whenever you honor your parents, when you obey your parents, you are obeying the authority that God has put over you. Ultimately this, for any kids here and parents as well, if you want to know where your child is at in their relationship with God, how do they treat you? This is what Paul is saying. Paul is saying a great indicator of where a child's heart is with God is how do they treat their parents? Do they honor their parents? Do they obey their parents? Rarely will you find a kid who dishonors his earthly parents but also serves his heavenly father. Rarely. Is that the case? 
And Paul's saying, children, you must honor your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And the third reason he gives us is that obedience to your parents pleases God. I want you to think about that. Obedience to your parents pleases God. In the sister text of this passage, in Colossians chapter 3, Paul says this. Chapter 3, verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. This pleases God. It pleases God whenever your parents ask you to do something and you do it. It pleases God whenever you obey them, when you honor them, whenever you revere the position that they are in, because one day your parents will have to give an account for how they parented you. You honor and you obey them. Now, we could go further into this. That's one of the hardest things about this text is you can go far into this. But I want to give you just three little small things for, for kids and even for us with our parents, even as adults, three ways we should always honor and obey our parents. And one is with our thoughts. Learn to think great things about your parents. It's funny, so often we don't think the best of them. We don't give them honor and respect in our minds. Therefore, we're obviously not going to honor and respect them in our lives. They may tell us to do something, and immediately we go to critique mode. My parents don't know anything. All of us have said that. My parents just don't understand. All of us have said that, right? All of us have said that. Your job as a child is not to critique your parents or say how good or bad of a job they're doing. Your job is to obey them and to honor them, and that begins with your mind. The second way you honor and obey them is with your words. It's with your words and the way that you talk to them, but also in the way you talk about them to other people. I want you to think about this. In the Old Testament, it was a capital offense to talk bad about your parents. Exodus 21, 17, it should be up on the screen. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. The word curse there is also the word for dishonoring them, to not respect them. Thank goodness that's not the case today, right? We wouldn't have kids. I wouldn't be here, right? But the whole point is there's a respect level that we should give our parents. There's a respect that we should give them. And our words should be honorable to them. And our words should be honoring about them. And, y'all, this is something that I've learned being a parent. You just don't realize how much a parent does. You don't realize. I remember my dad whenever I was a kid. I, I think I was a freshman or sophomore. And I just kept talking about how stressed out I was. And I'll never forget my dad finally getting fed up with it. said, Merrick, you have no idea what stressed out means. You have no idea. The older I've grown and the more I've learned about his story and what they had to go through. Whenever he went back to school with two kids in law school, I hear about some of the struggles they had there and all kinds of things that came with it. I realize the older I've gotten, I didn't know what stress was. Stressing over tests is okay, right? Like it's going to happen. But there's, there's a lot more in life than that. And I guess what I'm trying to say is, is for parents or for kids, we need to honor our parents. Because so often we don't realize that being a parent is the most thankless job in the world. It just is. Most of your life with your kids in the home, it is thankless. I've never wiped Abram's booty, changing his diaper, and him saying, thank you, Dad. I appreciate you doing that. It's never happened. I've never corrected my five-year-old whenever he throws a fit and chunks something across the wall. And him saying, you know what, Dad? You're right. You're right. I shouldn't have done that. And I figure it's probably going to be the same whenever they get to be teenagers. They're never going to say, Dad, thank you for grounding me. That was really good. I needed that discipline. You know, you're just not going to hear that, right? But it's a thankless job. You don't realize how much time and energy and resources your parents put into your life. I never paid attention to the fact that my parents were at every Tuesday night game, Friday night game. They bought me how many pairs of basketball shoes because I burned them out. How many pairs of clothes because I didn't really care about them. I wore them out. How many golf clubs? 
How many trips did they make to watch me play or to do stuff for me? And I just never took time to stop and think, man, my parents actually have a life that's not centered around me. I just didn't. And this is one of the aspects to honor your parents. You need to recognize what they go through for you. Now, I'm not saying that we're perfect parents by no means. You know, even me, whenever I'm talking about this, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting waters for me. I haven't had teenagers yet. I haven't been through the harder years yet. I have little kids, but I'm not a perfect parent. I told the first service, I said, I remember whenever Ellis, our oldest son, was 17 days old, my first day I realized I was a messed up father and I needed help. Was Abram, I'm sitting there rocking him, and I cannot console him no matter what I do. Eventually, remember, he's 17 days old. I put him on the bed, I throw the passy down, and I walk out the door. And I'm, I get out the door and I go, are you serious? Like, he's a 17-day-old kid. And I walk in there and obviously I grovel and I apologize to him. But I'm not a perfect dad. As I heard one guy say this week, he said, as parents, we need God's help. He said, there are some days where I think success is keeping myself out of jail. And there are some days I think success is keeping my kids out of jail. You know, for me, at my age with my kids at four, three, and one, I think success is me not locking myself in the room or locking them in the closet. Sometimes that's the way the day goes. But we need to honor our parents. We don't recognize all that they do. And we should speak well about them to other people. And we should use our words to thank them and speak well to them. Your thoughts, your words, last your actions. It doesn't matter if you just give lip service to your parents. You need to obey them. Honor them whenever you're not around. I remember whenever I was in high school, I had a buddy of mine who got in trouble one day. And he said he was talking to his mom and he was real cordial with his mom and was agreeing, you know. And then, and then he said, yeah, but whenever I got back to my room, I gave my mom a piece of my mind. Once he got away from her, right? And that's not what we're called to do. We're not called to be a certain way in front of our parents and then different. We're called to obey them with our words, with our thoughts, with our actions. And that goes for regardless of what age you're in. Speak well of your parents. Speak rightly to them. Honor and obey them. The parents' job, next. The children's job is to honor and obey your parents. The parents' spirit-filled role is this, is to raise your kids up in Christ. If you fail at anything else, don't fail at this. Your job is to raise your kids up in Christ. Look at verse 4. Paul says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You know, the fact that Paul is even addressing fathers in today's day and age, and he's put it under the banner of mutual submission. I don't know if you remember last week, all these come after Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The wife submits to the leadership of the husband. The husband submits to the needs of the wife. And here we see the kids submit to the leadership of the parents. And then he says, it's the other way as well. Parents submit to the needs of your kids, primarily their spiritual needs. This would have been extremely countercultural during Paul's day. I don't know if you remember this, but whenever we first started this series, I talked about how in Ephesus, the father had the right of authority. There was something called the father's authority. He could literally do what he wanted to with his kids. I mean, if he wanted to, to, to exercise capital punishment on a child for disobeying, he could do that, and it would not be legally against the law. Just one way to show you just how much power the father had. There was something this time called the custom of child exposure, which was a horrible practice. In the Roman world, when a child was born, the child was brought before the father, and it was laid in front of the father. And if the father picked up the child, then that meant that he accepted the child. That meant they would keep the child. If he turned and walked away, then they would dispose of the kid. The kid would either die or would have to be get adopted after it's thrown out. This was the world that Paul was in. And Paul's saying, fathers, 
Submit to the needs of your kids. Don't lord over them. Don't provoke them to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. In Paul's day, kids were seen as, as an inhibitor from them doing what they really wanted to do. It kept them from being able to become who they wanted to become. In other words, they were in some ways viewed as something that got in the way of their dreams and pursuits. It's not much different in many places of our world today. But parents, children are a grand, and I mean grand, blessing from God. A grand blessing from God. I read this this week in a book called Family Discipleship by Matt Chandler and Adam Griffin. They said this, whoever your children are, born to you or brought into your family, it doesn't matter. God has knowingly chosen you to train and care for them, to teach them all that he has commanded, and you are irreplaceable in this endeavor. You are irreplaceable in this endeavor. Nobody can take the place of the parents in the home or the guardians in the home. No one can take the place here. We have a grand blessing, and it's a grand responsibility. And Paul gives us a few commands here with this. First, he starts with this. He says, do not provoke your children to anger. Now, whenever he says fathers, it's much like in passages of Scripture where adelphoi is used. It's just the Greek word for brothers, but it can also mean brothers and sisters. All scholars would say the word here, petros, is the word for father, but it can have this connotation, father and mother, as parents. Do not provoke your children to anger. Colossians 3.21, I think, gives some clarity what, to what this means as well. Colossians 3.21 says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, lest they become discouraged. Don't provoke them to anger, lest they become discouraged. William Barclay, who's a scholar, and, and I was reading him about what he had to say in this passage this week, and he said, the plague of youth is discouragement. And one of the worst places they can feel discouraged is from their parents. This is what it means to not provoke them to anger. It's, it's not to, to beat them down. It's, it's not to discourage your children, but it's to bring them up. As I've looked, I've kind of compiled a list of what does it look like for parents whenever they discourage their kids? How do we sometimes do this as parents? It could be by being overly harsh or having unrealistic expectations for your kids. They're not perfect. You're not perfect. But sometimes we place these expectations or standards on our kids. In many ways, you need to let them be kids and give them grace as we help guide them. It can be an inconsistent discipline. It could be where one day you discipline them for this or one day you discipline them for that. It's just inconsistent. They don't know what to expect from you. Another might be comparing them to other kids. Another might be pressuring them to pursue your dreams rather than their own. Your job as parents isn't to say, I want you to be this sport figure. I want you to be in this career. It's to figure out what are, what's the way God's gifted your kids. How has he uniquely created them and help empower them, help them grow in that and serve the Lord with their gifts and their talents in their own way. It could be by failing to express approval or love to them. If I can't say, if you don't hear me say anything else about this, your kids hear what you say, regardless of how you feel in the moment. They hear, they listen. I learned this doing youth ministry. I learned this the year that I taught, even in school. Kids listen. Their posture sometimes, I think they're half asleep, but they listen. Be careful what you say to your kids. And the last way I could see discouragement happening is maybe requiring something of them that you don't do yourself. The most horrible mantra or methodology as a parent is do what I say, not as I do. It shouldn't be so in the Christian household. We should never ask them to do something we aren't willing to do. We should never ask them to act a certain way that we do not act ourselves. 
Parents should not discourage their children. That's the negative. But then Paul comes back with a positive. He says, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. When Paul says bring them up, he uses the same word here that he uses a few verses earlier. Ephesians 5, 29, whenever he tells the husband to nourish and cherish his wife. To bring them up is to nourish your children, to provide for your children, to cultivate something within your kids, to cultivate in them a love for the Lord. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You know, I read a book one time called Not a Fan. And in this book, Kyle Allman gives an example that I think was really powerful for me. It helped me understand some of my struggles growing up, but it helped me see a lot of the struggles of friends around me who grow up and then leave the church and never come back. And he said he was doing a counseling session one time with this couple, this husband and wife, and they had an older, uh, older kid who was out, and they had just gotten into a lot of trouble. They're just not living for the Lord, completely living in opposition to Christ. And the parents were just crying. They were just struggling with all of this. And Kyle said he's been in plenty of these situations before to hear parents ask the questions, you know, why? What did we do wrong? Why? Why? And he said, but this time it was different. The mom, as she's crying, she, she said, I know where we went wrong. And Kyle, confused, said, well, what do you mean? She said, we brought our kids up in church, but we didn't raise them up in Christ. And y'all, there is a distinct difference between these two. You can raise a child up in church, bringing them to church, having them around the church, telling them to read the word, telling them to do these things. But if you don't bring them up in Christ, through the discipline and instruction of the Lord, which I'm going to explain what that means, you can have a kid in church their whole life, and the second they leave, they're never coming back. Because you can raise them up in church, but miss out on raising them up in Christ. Let me explain what I mean. Paul says, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. These are two ways. I think we hit the nail on the head here. One, he says, to discipline them. Now, I know a lot of parents today don't want to discipline their kids because they saw it done badly to them. But just because you were disciplined wrongly, the answer for wrong discipline isn't no discipline, it's correct discipline, right? The answer to wrong discipline is not no discipline, it's correct discipline. It's learning, how do I discipline my kids to where they understand that they must follow God, that they must obey me, that they must obey me, and if they're not obeying me, eventually they're probably not going to be obeying the, obeying the Lord. We must seek obedience through correction and through controlled discipline, Correct and controlled discipline. Whenever I say correct discipline, I mean we must let the mode of discipline match what happened. I told the first service, and I'll tell you as well, if you tell my dad this, I will deny it. But I'll never forget as a kid. I was a junior in high school. I forgot to take out the trash one time, and he took my keys from me for two weeks. And I can remember how angry I was. And I mean angry, just thinking, is that really? Does this meet the crime? I forgot to take the trash out. You talk about discouraged. There were often times where I felt discouragement of, I don't know what's going to happen here. Now, my parents did a lot of great things, without a doubt. They're like anybody. They're, they were human, though. They made some errors. And unfortunately, their son's a preacher who can share some of them. I share my own, though. <laughs> but we have to let the, the mode of discipline, whether it is spanking a child, which is okay to do. Some children, that's one of the ways they learn, physical discipline. Some of them, you could beat them all day long, throw them outside. It doesn't matter what you do. You've got to learn, how do I discipline my kid? How do I learn to help them understand that they need to obey me out of my love for them, out of my love for them to understand that they should honor and obey the position I'm in? There should be correct discipline, letting it meet, let the mode meet what happened. But then also there should be controlled discipline. I think if you hear nothing else from discipline here, this is massive. We should never discipline our kids out of anger 
or frustration. Never. I read this this week, and I think it, it fits the point. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a preacher from the 19th century, he said, when, are you, when you are disciplining a child, you should have first controlled yourself. What right have you to say to your child that he or she needs discipline when you obviously need it yourself? Self-control is an essential prerequisite in the control of others. Yo, one of the things I've learned is I failed here with my kids, with little kids. I get frustrated. I get angry because I want to control the situation or they're not listening to me. And instead of lovingly disciplining them, I lash out in anger. What good does that do? It doesn't do good. You cannot discipline someone in sin and it have a productive result. You can't. And this is one of the things Paul is saying. Cultivate something in them. When you discipline them, do it the right way. Let the mode match the means, but do it in a controlled way. Do it in a controlled way, out of love for them, not out of anger because they disobeyed or frustration because they disobeyed. Bring them up in discipline. Next, Paul says, bring them up in instruction. Not only discipline, but also instruction. Now, I want you to notice here, there's nowhere in Scripture where Paul or God or any of the writers put the responsibility of instructing a child in Christ on the church. Nowhere. Now, is this a community effort? 100%. Should kids be in church? 100%. You should model that for them. And as long as they're in your house, you should model that for them. It doesn't matter if they say they don't want to go. They don't want to go to school. Do you say, okay, that's fine. Stay home. That doesn't make sense, right? Do this chore. I don't want to do that. Okay, you're right. No, it doesn't work in other aspects. It shouldn't be the same with the church. We should value it. Value them being here. I trust the youth pastor enough that he's preaching what's right. I trust our kids minister enough to know that she's teaching what is right. We should have them around here, but it is primarily the, the mom and dad's job to instruct their kid in the way they should go. And y'all, to be honest, I had five chapters or five pages of notes here. I've tried to sync this up as quickly as I can. And I just want to put it this way. It's kind of how I've outlined it for myself, and I'm going to use this for myself. Whenever you want to instruct your kids, you need to give them the what, the why, and the how. Without these three, there's a chance it could fall on deaf ears. There's a chance you can reverse anything you're trying to help them see. Let me explain what I mean. First, you need to give them the what. Teach. Don't just tell them what to believe. Teach. Teach them what to believe. Y'all, many of the parenting problems that, that, that I've seen, that I've seen from my friends, is they had parents who told them what to do but never gave them a why. They started off with, this is what you should do. You should go to church. You should read your Bible. You should have your quiet time. And yes, 100%, we should do those things, but why? Most often growing up, what I heard from people around me, you're supposed to do those. That's not compelling for anybody. That's not compelling for anything. If I'm supposed to do something, it sounds a lot to me like a tradition rather than, or a tradition or a fad rather than what I'm actually supposed to do. Is it based in Scripture? Why do I come to church? Why do I do these things? We are to teach them what to believe. Give them the what, but with the what, we must give them the why. Teach them why we believe it to be true. With just the what, it's not going to compel anything. Teach them the why. Why we should do this. Encourage your kids asking questions to you. Ask questions to your kid. Teach them why we believe what we do. Why do we do what we do? You leave church on a Sunday morning. We just finished the Lord's Supper. Why not tell them why we do this? I can do that from up here, but it's different if it's talked about in your home. Why do we do these things? Why do we go to church? Why read your Bible? And y'all, what I've found specifically with Christians, there's just been this aura of I'm afraid they're going to ask me a question I don't know. 
or I'm afraid they're going to ask a tough question, you know, and I'm just not equipped to do that. Hear me, y'all. People have been criticizing and coming after this book for thousands of years. Your child isn't going to ask a question that disproves it. They're not. But why would you let them go out there and think science will do it whenever you can say, no, let's talk about that? Why would you let them go out there whenever they first meet up with somebody who's an atheist on a college campus and they start thinking, oh, well, maybe I've never heard this before. Talk about it with your kids. We don't have anything to be afraid of. Look, if you have a lion as a pet, you're not afraid of a dog coming in your yard, right? And that's the truth of it. It doesn't matter if it's the baddest dog in the neighborhood. If you've got a lion as a pet, you don't care what comes your way. And, y'all, this is one of the things we should cultivate in our kids. Ask questions. The Bible can handle it. You can go through it. You can find answers. Now, it's not a math textbook. You won't find 5 plus 5. That's not the goal of it. It's not a science textbook. But ask questions of God's Word because God's Word gives us everything we need to live lives for Him. Everything we need to have obedient lives. I didn't share this in the first service, but I'll tell you this. Whenever I was a freshman in college, or I'm sorry, it was my first year at Louisiana Tech, so a sophomore in college, I'll never forget, I had somebody bold-faced look me in the face and say, why are you a Christian? I was 20 years old, and I'd never had anybody ask me that question. Never. And you know what? I didn't answer because I had no idea how to answer. Why? I don't know. These questions need to be brought up in our homes. Mom, why are you a Christian? Dad, why are you a Christian? These are questions that we need to cultivate in our kids, and we need to answer for them. We need to give them the what, we need to give them the why, and lastly, and I think most importantly, we must give them the how. Don't just teach them what to believe. Don't just teach them why we believe it, but teach and show them how to live it out. Teach and show them how to live it out. If you don't talk about how kids get discouraged, tell them what to do and maybe even why to do it, but then don't tell them how. Don't show them. Something I found out very early on in college ministry, whenever I get freshmen that come into my building, I would automatically assume over the years that they don't know how to study God's word. I would assume they don't know how to pray. I'd assume they really don't know how to have a quiet time. But oddly enough, they've been told their whole life to do these things, but nobody has ever shown them. Nobody's ever shown them. One example, I remember my, my current wife now, Emily, Remember, she came from a Catholic background. Whenever she got into, I said current wife, like I had another one at some point. My wife, Emily, let me retract that statement. Yikes. Whenever we were dating, you know, she grew up in a Catholic background. I remember she was at a church. And I'll never forget one time she's talking to me. She said, I keep being told to have a quiet time. What does that look like? I was like, man, we do say that, don't we? We tell people to read the Bible. But hear me, what happens when your child goes to do what you've told them to do and they don't understand it? They get what? Discouraged. You know how I know that? Because I've been discouraged in my attempts to read God's word. You know how I know you know it? Because if you've read God's word, there's times where you have been discouraged. We should show them. One day my kids are going to sit down with me, and I'm going to show them. This is how daddy has a quiet time. This is how I pray. This is how I memorize scripture. They didn't know how do you share your testimony. They didn't know how you share your testimony, how you share your story. If we tell them to do stuff but we don't show them, it will lead to discouragement. If we don't teach them how to read the word, how to pray, how to share their faith, then what makes us think that they actually will be able to do it? And, y'all, the biggest struggle for many of us, even as parents, is nobody showed us. Maybe I'm wrong. You could tell me afterwards. But I don't feel like that was one of the main things that I was shown growing up. I was told often to do these things, but I never saw how to do it. And it was discouraging. And I bet you if you asked your youth, if they've ever tried to read God's word, what they would tell you 
is I've stopped because I don't understand it. I don't understand it. Who's there to help them? Mom and dad, that's our job. Now hear me, you don't have all the answers. Let your kids see that. Don't be afraid of that. Don't be afraid of not knowing the answers. Lucky for us, we live in a digital age where we can find them pretty easily. Be careful where you're going, but we can find them, right? We should show them. Y'all, not only is there a danger in not showing them, but we should show, not only is there a danger of not showing them what we should do, but the danger in this aspect of showing them what we believe is so often that kids see parents saying one thing and their lives saying something different. When they do that, they get discouraged. Even more so than that, we get discredited. Let me explain what I mean. When kids see us talk about our joy in Christ, but they see us delight in football or hunting more than they do in Jesus, that speaks volumes to them. When kids see us talk about being lights in the world, and yet they don't see any difference in our lifestyle between them and their unbelieving friends and their families, it speaks to them. When they see us talk about not finding our worth here in this world, yet they see us sacrifice in order to have more, to do more, to be more, that speaks volumes to them. When they see us talk about God and honoring God with our lives, but then with the same mouth they see us talk down about other people or talk down about others or say things to them or to our spouse, it says something about what we say we believe. Now, I'm not arguing for perfectionism. That's not what the Bible says. What I'm saying is we have to make our life match up with what we say. Our kids see it. They see it. We must live in such a way where we show them the why. We give them the what. We give them the why. We show them the how. And y'all, this is such a hard situation, remember, but this whole passage, this whole section starts with be filled with the Spirit. You are not equipped to do this on your own. I'm not equipped to do this on my own. Paul was not equipped to do this on his own. We need the Spirit's help. We can't show him how to do a quiet time if we aren't ourselves, right? We can't show him how to read if we're not ourselves. We can't show him how to pray if we're not ourselves. And y'all, to do this, to bring our kids up in discipline and instruction, it takes a lot of time. You know what that means for us? It means we got to learn to put the phone down. It means we got to learn to put the remote down. Dads, whenever we get home from work, our job isn't done. It isn't time just for us to do what we want to do the rest of the night. It's not. Moms, I know that it's, it's busy. Sometimes you're trying to get all the things done. You're, you're, you're shuffling all kinds of different hats as well, but don't neglect the discipline and instruction of your child for the sake of getting the task done. Put the remote down. Maybe for us guys, get home from work in a timely manner. Moms who work, get home from work in a timely manner. We shouldn't stay out long, long hours. We should put our family up front. Now, obviously, there's times for that, but we need to get home. Spend time with your family. Invest in them. All this together, children, your job is to honor and obey your parents. And parents, your job is to raise them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, before I move past this, I want to say this. You can do this. Just because you do this, it isn't fail-proof. Your kids will grow up and love Christ. So don't hear me saying, if your kids don't love Jesus, it is your fault. Don't hear me say that. All of us are going to make mistakes as a parent. But this is what we should rise to. This is what we should hope to be. It's parents who nourish and cherish our kids and raise them up in Christ. What we see Paul now moves from children and parents to employees and employers. And honestly, this, this actually is a lot more similar than what you would think it would be. This half is going to be much shorter than the first half because a lot of it is just building on what Paul has already said. But before I jump into work, I want to say this. Many of us have this idea of work, that work is some result of the fall. Work is awful. Work is just a paycheck. That's not what God's word has to say about it. A proper theology of work helps us understand God gave Adam work to do before the fall ever happened. God created 
the Garden of Eden. God created everything. Then he put Adam in the garden to work it and to keep it. And if you think whenever you get to heaven, it's eternal rest, meaning that you sit on the lazy boy all day, that's not what it is. It's life as it should be. You will have work to do in heaven. I'm sorry to bust your bubble. (laughs) You will have work to do in heaven, but it won't be as laborious. It won't be the struggle that it is now. It'll be much different. But look, God is a God who works. He is still working. He's not inactive. Jesus, whenever he came to earth, he wasn't inactive until he was 30 and then went on his ministry. No, he was a stonemason. He was a carpenter. He worked. It's not a result of the fall. It was from before it, y'all, because ultimately work is an avenue of worship. When we work, we worship God. Not so much in the job specifics, but when we work, we worship God. Not all bosses, I mean, not all jobs are fun. Not all bosses are equal. Not all this is great. When we work, we are worshiping. If you're friends with me on Facebook, I, I put a little question on there this week. What's the worst job you've ever had or your least favorite job you've ever had? Obviously, people like that question because I got 95 comments pretty quickly. People wanted to say, man, this was horrible. This was awful. And some of them are really bad. I somewhat felt bad for you. I had a few people say, debt collection, which does not sound like fun. Telemarketing. I can't believe you let yourself get in that position. That's rough. I can't imagine how bad that was. I love one person said, just cleaning the toilet in my house. I get that. That's why we got rubber gloves, right, and really, really long extension scrubbers, right? And that's why you have kids. Just kidding. Working in tobacco fields. I got to be honest. I don't understand that one because I know nothing about tobacco fields. And somewhat I'm like, if you're around it, doesn't the nicotine kind of get on you and like kind of kills the pain, I guess? Maybe that's not really accurate. But. And the last one I saw was giving cattle pregnancy checks. I don't know what that entails, but I'm guessing a long rubber glove, and that's as far as I'm going to go with it. Giving, you know, I, people have worked some rough jobs, right? And we don't think all of them are equal. Like, can this really be worship? Y'all, I remember whenever, uh, right before Emily and I got married, you know, I was at that spot where literally I spent everything I had to buy a ring for her. Literally everything. Almost zeroed out my accounts. I was that puppy sick, right? And I had to find some ways to make some more money. Well, my dad said, hey, I know somebody who does natural gas pipeline. You can just go work for him. I'm like, oh, that's not a big deal at all. Yo, I show up the first day in my Nikes and just some pants, some old jeans I had. And they told me to wear a long sleeve shirt. So I just had like an old buttoned-up shirt that I was wearing out there. I don't have anything really nice. And I get out there, and immediately the guy's like, this isn't going to work. Like, you need steel-toe boots, you need fire-resistant pants and shirt and everything else, so I had to leave. But, y'all, I remember we got out there. You think it gets hot in Kentucky. I'm sorry if I giggle whenever people say that. Y'all, y'all don't understand. I remember the second day I was working there, it was 110 outside. I was in a little hole in the ground as I'm trying to work on this pipe, which I have no clue what's going on. That should make you feel good that people like me are working on gas pipelines. But I'm down there. There's no wind because I'm in a hole, and I'm just getting... Bear down with heat, and I'm wearing this hat, and I just remember it was awful. And I thought, God, if you get me out of here, I will honor you by never showing my face here again. And I did. I mean, we got back to the place, and I left, and I never came back. I did go back and get my paycheck. My whole point, y'all, is, yes, oftentimes jobs are work. Jobs aren't fun. Not all jobs are created equal. Not all jobs seem like they're fun. But hear me, whatever job you're in, God has you there for a reason, a reason Work is an avenue of how we worship God. And real quickly, employee's spirit-filled role is this. You work like and for Christ. You work as if you were Christ in your position, and you work as if you were serving and honoring Christ. Look at how Paul gets to the conclusion of this passage, verses 5 through 8. He says, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, 
but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Before we look at this even more clearly, I know there's a glaring question here. He said bondservant. Is he talking about slavery here? I've heard it said before, the Bible never, the Bible never condones slavery. That's just not true. The, the, the Bible talks about slavery, yes, without a doubt. The first thing you need to understand is slavery in the first century was nothing like 17th, 18th, 19th century American slavery. Nothing like it. Horse historian Murray Harris wrote a book about slavery and what it was like in first century Greco-Roman world. And he said this, there are four big differences. One, slaves were not distinguishable from anyone else by race, speech, or clothing. They looked and lived like everyone else and were never segregated and were never segregated from the rest of society in any way. The second way it's different is slaves were more educated than their owners in many cases, and many times they were even given managerial positions as a bondservant of a person. The third reason is from a financial standpoint, slaves made the same wages as anybody else and therefore were not themselves usually poor and often accrued enough personal capital to buy themselves free. And the fourth is very few persons were slaves for life in the first century. Most expected to be set free about 10 years, about after 10 years, or by their late 30s at the very latest. It is said that about a third of the Roman world were bond servants during Paul's time. The more I've read about this, the more it is, this is one of the avenues of a job for people during Paul's day. You would be a bond servant of, of someone, and you would labor on their field. You would labor in whatever trade they did. Notice it's mainly younger people. A lot of times you would do this, and you would accrue up wealth for yourself. Then you would get out, and you would do something else. This was a common aspect of society, very much so different than what we have in our world of slavery. There's more to go in there for that, but for time's sake, the Bible does not say slavery is good or slavery is okay. If you read Philemon, you get a little bit more of an idea of Paul's heart regarding slavery. But, so how to work. Paul says, work as Christ would and work for his glory. Look again, verse 5. He says, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. That means respect them, honor them. He says, with a sincere heart. It means sincerely work and serve in your workplace. R. Kent Hughes says, have no ulterior motives or hypocrisy in your workplace. Verse 6, he says, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. I remember in high school, whenever I was on the basketball team, our coach was at one point the, the assistant principal, and he had to get called out of our practices often. And I can remember we'd be doing drills, and our coach was Coach Carter, which is quite ironic if you know anything about the famous Coach Carter. But Coach Carter, and, and he ran a tight ship. I mean, we had to do stuff, do stuff. Now, the second he walked out of the gym, though, it was all bets off. Like, it was a circus in there. I mean, we literally went globetrotters on everything, you know, our version, obviously. And doing all kinds of different stuff or whatever. Then whenever he came back, we were back to fundamentals, you know, just doing whatever, just normal things. But this is what Paul is saying, is as a follower of Christ, do not be a people pleaser at your job. Work hard regardless of whether your boss is there to watch you or not. Work hard regardless of whether somebody's looking over your shoulder or not. I heard it said this week, Christian workers shouldn't need accountability in the workplace because they should always be doing their job to their best. They should exemplify excellence in their job. Verse 7, Paul says, rendering service with a good will, rendering service with a good heart. This means a good attitude or an enthusiasm that you're getting to serve here. And I think Paul gets to the whole point of this passage in 7b and 8. He says, work for them as unto the Lord, not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, 
whether he is a bondservant or is free. Colossians 3, 23 through 24, once again, the sister passage even sheds more light on this. It says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Look at how he ends that. You are serving the Lord Christ. You are serving the Lord Christ. You say, yes, you heard that right. Paul is saying, when you work, you work as if you're serving him because you are. You work as if you are serving the Lord because you are. Jesus is the preemptive theme throughout these three verses. Paul says, work as you would for Christ, as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God as to the Lord, as one who will receive a reward from Christ. In other words, your work ethic affects your witness. Your work ethic says something about your relationship with God. Y'all, followers of Christ should be the best employees there are in the business. We should be the most sincere, the most honest, the most genuine, having the best attitude, not complainers, working with joy and gratitude. We should be trustworthy. We should be reliable because ultimately we're striving to be like Jesus and serve as if we're serving Jesus himself, which leads to the employer's role, which is the fourth and final one. The employee is to work like and for Christ. The employer is to lead like and for Christ. Look at verse 9. Paul says, masters, do the same to them. And stop your threatening, knowing that he is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. He starts by saying, you do the same. In other words, if you are a leader, you have people under you, you own your business, whatever, people that work for you, if you want respect from them, Paul's saying you should be respectful. If you want sincerity and devotion from them, you should be sincere and honest and trustworthy towards them. If you want them to work hard, you should be a hard worker. If you want a good attitude from them, you should have a good attitude. A Christian should never be a fearful or dominating leader. We should lead in grace. We should lead in love. We should lead being a model of what it looks like to work hard because ultimately we're serving Jesus. And once again, this goes back to the Ephesians 5.22 or 5.21 idea. Mutual submission, serving one another. Paul is keeping this under that banner just as the wife submits to the leadership of the husband and the husband submits to the needs of the wife just as the parent submits to the needs of the child and the child submits to the leadership of the parent he's using the same exact thing with an employee and an employer employees submit to the leadership of your boss not doing anything unethical or wrong but submit to their leadership employers submit to the needs of your employees treating them with respect and honor and he is this because there's no partiality with god in other words, it doesn't matter how much is coming in on your paycheck. You're the same in God's eyes. You're viewed the same in God's eyes. You're still working for the Lord. You're still to serve the Lord. And ultimately, we're to show the people, we're sh we're to show people the gospel by serving, loving, and leading them. And I'll say it again. Christian, Christian employers and employees should be the best models of what it looks like to work in the workplace. Y'all, Justin Martyr was a writer and a church historian in the second century. And he talks about how Christianity took over the Greco-Roman world. I mean, it just took over. And eventually, by the third century, it became the dominant religion in the world. And he writes about how did Christians affect the people around them. And he points to two areas. He says they're neighborhoods. Christians were extremely good whenever people were around them. People saw something different, and they won their neighbors to Christ. The second one, he said, their workplace. He accounts how whenever people worked with Christians, they were affected by them. Doing business with Christians led them to Christ. You know, as believers, this is what it's about. We should be witnesses 
in our workplace. We should see our jobs as an opportunity to go and to be a model for Christ. I've heard it plenty of times before. Merrick, you don't understand, though. My workplace is lost. It's dark there. And what I would say is that's the reason God has put you there, period. That's why God has you there. That's why you're put in this position. Remember, Paul's just talked about walking as children of lights. That's why you have the job in the dark area, to shine. You're there to pray for your fellow employees and your bosses. You're there ultimately to seek to model Christ. Your work is a gift from God. And our work ethic says something about our relationship with the Lord. Paul, in this whole section, he's saying in all this, we need to be spirit-filled. We need to be with Christ. We need to spend time with him. We need to be filled with his spirit in order to have marriages that look like his, to have a church that looks like this, to be a mom or a dad or a child like this, or to be a boss or an employee in this way. All of us need to be filled with his spirit for his glory so we can live for him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, I just thank you for your word. God, I know that though this is nine verses, there is a ton that is in here. But God, the themes are, are, are overarching for us, Lord, as, as families. God, we should raise up our families for you. The child and parent relationship, the, the spouse relationship should model what it looks like to follow you. It should model this submission of one's need and one's leadership back and forth. And God, I pray that you'd be with us this morning. We are not a sanctuary full of perfect parents. I know that. Or perfect kids. Or perfect employees. Or perfect employers. But God, I pray this morning we do business with you about that. We do an honest evaluation of how are we seeking to live for you? How are we seeking to model Christ in our home and in the workplace? Or for students, how are we seeking to model you at school? How are we seeking to model you in our obedience to our parents? How are we seeking to model and serve you? Because what Paul, I know, is making abundantly clear here is in every avenue we are called to serve you. In everything, we're called to serve you. But help us do an honest evaluation of ourselves this morning. And help us respond to you however we need to. We ask all this in your precious, in your holy son's name. Amen. You as I end this morning, I think a lot of the imperatives or the questions, I guess, that you need to ask and how you need to go from here are pretty reasonable. Children, your thought life, your word life, your actions, are you obeying and honoring your parents? If not, I would tell you to repent. And then I would tell you, go and tell your parents. Apologize. Parents, the same token, I would tell you, are you raising your children up and the discipline and instruction of the Lord, not perfectly, but are you doing that? Many of us as parents need to go and talk to our kids. Maybe apologize. Maybe you need to make a plan. How are we going to raise them up in God's discipline and instruction? Starting with being a part of the local church, yes, but what does it look like in your home? How can you give the what, the why, and the how in your home? Maybe that's what you need to think about. For those of you who have a job, is your job different because you're there? Is it different? If you were to be removed from your workplace, would there be any difference for the kingdom where you work? Maybe you need to pray. Promote to say, you know, whenever I drive to work, I'm not going to listen to music. I'm going to pray the whole way to work. Maybe you're going to start, I don't know, trying to start a Bible study there. You don't have to do that. Maybe you're saying, you know what, there's some stuff I'm doing. There's ways that I'm leading or there are ways that I'm serving. I need to change this. Maybe you don't join in with the banter of the other employees. I would tell you, how do you need to follow Christ better in your workplace? And I tell you this morning, as you think through this, as the bands play, just sit and think, repent, and respond to God however you need to do so this morning.